Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, a lot going on this week. Uh, we just wrapped up a fantastic interview with our guest today, uh, Rula Jabril. She is a foreign policy analyst and author. You've probably seen her on TV. And it was really great to talk with her about this agreement that was announced last week between the U.S., Israel, and the United Arab Emirates, uh, because I think there's a lot more to be discussed than what's been covered so far. Uh, We're going to cover a lot today. So there's this massive Senate Intelligence Committee report that just dropped uh, about Russian interference in the 2016 election that we've been combing through. We've got some updates on the election in Belarus, protests in Thailand, uh, a diplomatic humiliation for the U.S. at the U.N., check in on Lebanon, Portugal, Spain, and cover some reports that Iran was also paying the Taliban bounties to kill U.S. troops. Very troubling stuff. And then, Ben, uh, I want to ask you about why officials were talking shit about Matthew Pottinger, the deputy national security (laughs) advisor. So that's a fun one. Also, um, Ben, just curious for you, why do you think you have not just rented, but like established residency in the heads of a lot of like very senior officials in the Republican Party. One of them, the National Security Advisor, literally mentioned you on a Sunday show. It misstated your views on uh, on the uh, Israel-UAE deal, by the way. Yeah, I mean, Tommy, uh, as you say, uh, the one thing I'm grateful to these guys for is that they have charged me no rent to be <laughs> in their head like this. But I mean, look, the thing I've learned over the years is I've been kind of a boogeyman to this constellation of people and in the Emirates and in Israel and in right-wing uh, Republican politics is that they don't like to have actual debates on the merits. They don't want to debate their Iran policy versus ours. They don't want to have to explain how this agreement somehow moves us closer to peace with the Palestinians, because it doesn't. So they call you names, and they say, you're an Iranian Ayatollah. Like, that's kind of the response to everyone. It's just childish, and it's the reflexes of people who, frankly, don't know what they're doing, and, and or they do know what they're doing, but they can't defend it, and so they just call you call your names. I would also say it's a it's a reminder that this administration is full of small people in big jobs, and if you're the national security advisor and you're attacking yeah. a guy who would have worked for you four years ago, you look like a petty asshole who who is unwilling to actually have a conversation about really big important stuff. So whatever, O'Brien. Yeah, and you know the only other thing I'd say about this is that like, you know what, like. Sometimes people are like, well, you know, give Trump credit when the, the same people who are doing crackdowns in Portland, who are doing, like the same authoritarians did this. So you have to question their motives. Absolutely. And if the best thing to muster is to go on a Sunday show and call anyone who like raises questions about what they did, the Ayatollahs, well, that's a bit of a tell also. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll examine this deal in, in much more detail. Uh, but everyone just, you know. Maybe trust but verify. Reagan once said that maybe. Whatever. Anyway, uh, real quick, uh, if you guys want to hear us talk about not just foreign policy, but also politics, the Democratic National Convention is happening right now. Go to crooked.com slash convention if you want to join us each night uh, starting at 9 Eastern. We're doing our fun group that thing. Lots of hosts from Crooked talking about the speeches, cracking jokes, trying to stay sane through all these hours of programming. Uh, So check it out. Um, Ben, let's get to this uh, Senate Intelligence Committee report. This thing just got dropped on us today. It's the the Intel Committee's fifth and final report on Russian interference in the 2016 election. And it's it's a big one. It's a thousand pages. It was bipartisan. Remember, the Senate Intelligence Committee is led by Republicans, so they had to work together on most of this. And it was focused on counterintelligence threats and vulnerabilities. So here are some conclusions that jumped out to me like early on. One, 
Putin ordered the hacking effort. It was extensive. It was designed to help Trump hurt Clinton and generally undermine the U.S. democratic process. We've known this for a while. This is new. Uh, the report describes Paul Manafort's employee of many years, Konstantin Kalimnik, as a Russian intelligence officer. That is far more definitive than the previous descriptions of him as having ties to Russian intelligence. And remember, this is a guy with a longstanding relationship with Paul Manafort. Uh, it describes Kalimnik as an integral part of Manafort's operations in Ukraine and Russia. Uh, remember that Manafort gave Kalimnik the Trump campaign's internal polling data, which is not normal. Talk to him about strategy. Uh, the report suggests that Kalimnik might be tied to the Russian military intelligence or the GRU, their specific hacking efforts in this case. They talk about how Kalimnik later spread the idea that actually Ukraine interfered in the 2016 election and not Russia. So he was trying to cover up the crime. Uh, a couple of things, they found that WikiLeaks sought to join this Russian effort and likely knew exactly who they were helping. Here's a tantalizing detail, Ben. Uh, on the day of the infamous Access Hollywood tape that came out, Roger Stone got a tip it was coming. He called a right-wing lunatic who you're probably familiar with named Jerome Corsi. Jerome Corsi had a relationship with WikiLeaks. In that call, Stone told Corsi to have WikiLeaks release the Podesta emails. That day, they broke WikiLeaks broke them 30 minutes after the Access Hollywood tape broke. It seems very likely that that uh, decision was coordinated directly with Trump or with his direct knowledge because they talked that day, Stone and Trump. Um, they also found that the Russian participants in the Trump Tower meeting had much more extensive and disconcerting context with the Russian government than previously known. Uh, it also criticizes the FBI for giving too much credence to the Steele dossier and, and not really adjusting their approach when parts of it began to unravel a little bit. Uh, and then finally, like it, it says that Russian officials, Intel services, others working with the Kremlin were able to exploit Trump's inexperienced transition team. So that's sort of after the fact. So, Ben, this report is it's timely and it's infuriating, right? Like timely because Russia is trying to do this again. Hopefully this wakes people up. We take it more seriously. But mostly I'm just so pissed because like clearly there was collusion, coordination between the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks, a.k.a. Russian intelligence. Uh, it seems very likely Trump knew about it. But all the key witnesses stonewalled. Some were later pardoned. Mueller failed to push hard enough for an in-person interview with Trump. Barr was later able to spike the thing. So here we are. Like, this is <laughs> collusion dead to rights in a bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee document. But but seemingly the world has just moved on from this story. Yeah, I, I mean, what this tells you, right, is the absolute worst case scenario of what you could have possibly imagined happened the day after our election in 2016 with respect to Russia and Trump happened <laughs> because l l let's just step back. R Russian intelligence was coordinating with the campaign manager for Donald Trump and a range of other associates around Donald Trump to help him get elected. And the specificity of that coordination wasn't just like the kind of thematic creation of social media content. It literally dealt with things like the fact that the WikiLeaks dump happened right after the Access Hollywood tape, the existential threat to Trump's campaign to, to create a, a diversion. Like that's a degree of, of coordination that, I mean, we used to debate collusion. Like we, we are now at a much more specific level here. And so the, the story is clear. Like Russia wanted Trump to win. Trump wanted to accept Russia's help. People around Trump, including his highest aides on his campaign, set up in, uh, connections with Russian intelligence and they ran the play and it worked. And, and I, I don't, you know, there's nothing more to it. It's, it's an open and shut case. It's a layup, you know? And, and I think what's so infuriating 
is that George Tennant might say it's a slam dunk, Ben. But anyway, continue. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. It's beyond, it's beyond the lamp. And I mean, what's so infuriating is that we somehow allowed this whole thing to be so sidetracked for so many years with all these bullshit off ramps and and Donald Trump yelling about text messages between FBI agents who were having an affair or something or, or you know, attacking Mueller and, and Mueller being silent. I mean, it just shows you like how much the, the, the democratic accountability in our system failed on this issue. And, and sure, it, it succeeded in getting this report out, but I almost had a question when reading this report of like, why are they just telling us this now? <laughs> like, how long have they known all these things? I, I, I mean, imagine how things would have been differently if these, it, these revelations were consistently put forward so right. that Trump couldn't just uh, gaslight the whole thing. Yeah. And like Richard Burr, uh, Republican from North Carolina, best known these days for for dumping a bunch of stock after he got a coronavirus briefing, led most of the work on this. He has stepped down from the committee. Marco Rubio took over. Rubio, the loser that he is, is out there spinning this as being about a win for Trump because of the Steele dossier. So it just it shows you how unserious the Republican Party is. And I think, frankly, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. Yeah, no. And, and, and we're here on the doorstep of another election where you have to assume the Russians are doing the same thing and we've taken no steps to, to protect ourselves. I think what it shows is, look, you know, pretty amazing, Tommy, that we're sitting here having learned this level of detail about yeah. how the last president of the United States was elected in coordination with the Russian intelligence operation. And it's like the fourth biggest story after, uh-huh. you know, the pandemic and the economy crashing and everything else. And that that is what it is. But I think it demonstrates the need to come back at this from a view of accountability after we get rid of Trump, you know, totally. the, we cannot let this thing just because people are tired of hearing about it, just because you think, you know, maybe they talked about it too much on MSNBC and Twitter and all the rest of it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be consequences for the fact that this happened. And, you know, and look, the fact that Roger Stone is right in the middle of this and, and he was pardoned by Donald Trump. Talk about, you know, somebody trying to, to engage in a cover up. I mean, that's totally. literally an act of obstructive justice. Like, so I, I think this adds fuel to the necessity of there being some capacity commission or otherwise to look back at all this if Donald Trump is defeated. Yeah, we, we either deal with this or it's going to happen again. Uh, exactly. let, let's talk about another election that uh, Vladimir Putin is trying to control, this time in Belarus. So, you know, Ben, it's, it's pretty amazing. The people of Belarus are just refusing to go quietly as President uh, Alexander Lukashenko tries to steal this election. We, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks. Lukashenko has led Belarus for 26 years. He's often called Europe's last dictator. This year, he faced a strong challenge from an opposition candidate named Svetlana Tikhonovskaya. Lukashenko has a long history of rigging elections. But this year, you know, observers were saying like the popular support was not behind him, not that it ever is. So when Lukashenko announced that he'd won the August 9th election with 80% of the vote, people took to the streets and they just haven't left yet. So on Sunday, there was a rally. It was called the largest in the country's history. Thousands have been arrested, many of whom said they were tortured. On Monday, uh, Lukashenko visited a tractor plant. And according to the BBC, this was a quote from him. uh, We held the election until you kill me. There will be no other election. Great. Uh, Those workers booed him and they chanted, go away, go away, which is pretty amazing that they were shouting this guy down. But, you know, Lukashenko might also not want to give many ideas because they seem pretty bold. Um, He sort of offered to hold a referendum on changes to the Constitution. I think everyone knows that's just a stalling tactic. So these protests are still growing. 
Uh, workers are striking at state-run factories. Hundreds of state TV staff have walked off the job or resigned. Uh, Tikhodovskaya says she's ready to step in and prepare new elections. Um, ben, looming large in all of this is you know, the Belarus's shared border and, and weird partnership with Russia. There's a lot of speculation, including on, on Russian state TV, uh, about whether Russia might send in troops. Though some analysts I read pointed out that it would probably be counterproductive because the opposition in Belarus is anti-Lukashenko, not anti-Russia. So something to consider. Um, our former colleague, Mike McFall, wrote a piece the other day about what the U.S. and Europe should be doing. He's a former ambassador to Russia and, and mostly a democracy expert. Um, so Mike argued that the U.S. and Europe should coordinate sanctions on Lukashenko and his government, call for the release of political prisoners, and threaten even greater sanctions if that doesn't happen. He suggests Pompeo offer to mediate, negotiate a transition, and that the U.S. and Europe should warn Putin publicly and privately not to intervene or else to help face tougher sanctions. Uh, ben, what do you make of uh, McFall's ideas? And like, how worried would you be if you were Lukashenko right now? Well, I, I think if Lukashenko should be worried, and, and, and this is the reality of, of authoritarianism and totalitarianism, which is that these leaders seem in, inevitably entrenched until one day they just aren't. <laughs> when, when the fear factor is broken, these are not just protests. People are not going to work. People at state television are not going to work. The whole country is just fed up and they're decided to no longer be afraid. And things can change very fast in autocratic systems like that. We saw that happen with the collapse of a lot of the Soviet-backed governments in, in Eastern Europe, obviously, uh, in, the, in the 80s and, and early 90s. And, and Putin knows that, right? I mean, that's what he's afraid of happening in, in Russia. Um, this is a little different than Ukraine for a couple of reasons. Ukraine, part of what was at issue in Ukraine, part of what people were protesting about is they wanted to take steps to draw closer to the EU. Right. Belarus is not doing that. Yeah. These people just want Lukashenko gone. Yeah. There is no agreement for them to potentially join the EU. So there, there, there may be less incentive for Putin to stick himself in the middle of this and to frankly risk a, a, a backlash coming to him, like what came to Lukashenko, by rolling tanks in. Uh, on the other hand, he's done it before in both Georgia and Ukraine, so you have to take the threat seriously. But again, it's not an obvious choice for Putin to do this, one of the things he's already seen is that in some of the protests in Russia that have been taking place, there have been people holding the flags of the Belarusian opposition. So there's a risk for this thing to go contagious into Russia as well. And so Putin may actually have an interest in just seeing some transition in Belarus to at least calm things down. Um, I, I think in terms of the US, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely, I think we should be united with the Europeans and imposing sanctions on Lukashenko on essentially you know, declaring that we don't see Lukashenko as, as, as having legitimately won this election uh, and that we're on the side of the people in the streets. But again, we're not going to be the ones to shape this outcome. It should be the people of Belarus who shape the outcome. But we should make it unequivocally clear that we're on their side uh, and that we, we see Lukashenko as someone who's not legitimately won his election. Yeah, uh, I, I bet Putin is watching closely. Uh, some protests have been happening in eastern Russia, where I think he removed a popular governor and people are pissed about it. Um, by the way, one way to, I think, get a better understanding of what's happening in Belarus and a lot of places, Ben, is to listen to your new podcast, Missing America. Yeah. Today's yeah. episode is about the rise of nationalism. It is one of my favorite episodes. There's tons of David Lammy. Tell us more. Well, no, it's, you know, it is directly tied to this because essentially we, we look at Okay, over the last decade, why has there been this rise in nationalism globally? But we look at it particularly through the prism of Europe, you know, Brexit, 
and Viktor Orban in Hungary and the Law and Justice Party in Poland. And what David walks us through is how right-wing leaders took advantage, I think, of this kind of crisis of, uh, of people having a lack of a sense that government was working, a sense that the institutions of globalization and democracy had failed after the 2008 financial crisis, and just kind of a yearning in this 21st century world win for belonging right. that the right wing took advantage of, that all these nationalists came along and they offered the oldest form of belonging there is. You know, you're on this team and it's us versus them. It's us versus immigrants. It's us versus Muslims. It's us versus George Soros or what have you. And, and then we hear from some remarkable activists from Poland and from Hungary and from Switzerland of all places where they've successfully beat back right-wing nationalism about, about the lessons that worked for them. And, and it is directly tied to Belarus because, yeah, Lukashenko's more entrenched, but he's running the same playbook essentially, right, yeah. which is nationalism on top of authoritarianism. And the people in the streets, they're running the same playbook that these activists talk about, which is just mobilization and, and focusing on local issues that have a, make a difference in people's lives and not succumbing to apathy. You know, we're seeing it play out in Belarus. I, I really think we're potentially at a hinge point here where time is running out for these nationalists and autocrats. But, you know, it's up to all of us to make sure, starting in our election here, that there's something else that can take their place. Yeah. Listen, uh, everyone check out Missing America. Subscribe today. Uh, it's one of my favorite episodes that's out today. So uh, you will love it. Yeah, I love this episode. This is probably, yeah, this is definitely my one or two favorite episodes. Uh, okay. Ben, let's turn to, to Thailand, because that's also on the list of countries where protesters have taken to the streets. So uh, according to the BBC, police in Bangkok say 10,000 people were part of an anti-government rally on Sunday in Thailand uh, that lasted eight hours and has been called the biggest protest in the country in six years. Their demands include one, uh, the prime minister's resignation, two, a new constitution, three, a new parliament, and then for, for the government to stop harassing dissenters, basically. Uh, the South China Morning Post detailed how protesters are using, like you said earlier, the Hong Kong protest playbook. And they're, they're doing this cool thing where they're throwing up the, the three-finger salute from the Hunger Games to symbolize the reforms they want. So like they're, they're taking this modern. Um, they're also calling for reforms to Thailand's monarchy. And so here is why that is so risky. In Thailand, criticizing the royal family will get you thrown in jail. And we're not talking about like a night in the slammer. We're talking about three to 15 years per charge. It's called the Les Majestés Law. I think I said that right. It's been in place for 100 years. The Thai constitution says uh, the king shall be enthroned in a position of revered worship and shall not be violated. No person shall expose the king to any sort of accusation or action. Uh, I don't know that that would go over well for our friends in the UK, Ben. So the thing that's so pernicious about this is anyone can accuse anyone else of insulting the monarchy and the police have to investigate the allegation. So you can get tossed in some long pre-trial detention for nothing. Not that it's acceptable to arrest you for, for doing something, but it's just a w easy to be abused. So the current prime minister uh, came to power in a military coup in 2014. Since then, the number of these cases has more than doubled, even for online offenses like liking a Facebook post deemed offensive to the monarchy. One guy was threatened with 37 years in prison for insulting the king's dog, uh, which seems crazy. Um, so protesters basically want the monarchy to be accountable to the elected government and the constitution. Thailand's economy is also struggling uh, mightily. They, they dealt with the coronavirus well, but their tourism business just dropped to zero because of the disease. Um, they also, you know, they're also angry about the dissolution of a pro-democracy political party in February. They believe the government may be responsible for a pro-democracy activist going missing in Cambodia. So that's pretty dark. Um, 
Ben, you know, given the stakes involved uh, with, with these crazy laws in Thailand, it's already pretty remarkable to see these protesters out in the streets in the open like this. But, you know, we also know that Thai security forces have crushed protests in 1973, 76, 1992, 2010. What do you remember from this this coup in 2014? You were in the White House at the time. You've like spent a ton of time yeah. in the region. Yeah. And, and do you have hope for these protest movements? So like, I, I hate to ask you to predict, but it, it, it's remarkable. So yeah, I'm do, I'll do a little bit of background here. So Thai, sure. Thai politics kind of got polarized because there was this populist guy, Thaksin, who got elected prime minister, who was, even though he's a really rich guy, had very broad support kind of in the countryside and outside of the traditional elite. And, Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and the military hated him and kind of the established powers and the B in Bangkok hated him. And, you know, he was you know, taken out in a coup. His sister got elected. And so in 2014, his sister was prime minister, uh, Yingluck. And, you know, they, de- they deposed her in a coup. Um, and so it, it kind of polarized things. Now, throughout history, there have been coups in Thailand that usually lead to some return to democracy elections. That didn't really happen this time. The, the military took power and they basically kept it. So the first major element to keep in mind here is that you had a military coup that was never followed up by some return to democracy or some negotiation with the opposition. The, the people who took power just held it. The second thing that happened is the monarchy. So Thailand had this revered king for decades, a symbol of national unity. The kind of one thing that brought the the Thai people together was their affinity for their king. His son was always seen as kind of this dilettante. I mean, this this guy, you mentioned the dog. He he made his dog a a colonel in the Thai armed forces. You know, (laughs) he he lived most of the time in Europe. You know, he was kind of living the life of a of a jet set right. globally. And so he does not have the same attachment to the people. And the king died a couple of years ago. And so now you've got a situation where the royal family is no longer the unifying symbol it used to be, and the military is not giving up power. And, and that's a pretty unstable mix, right? Yeah. So I think yeah. what we're seeing is the backlash to that. Like, wait a second here. <laughs> you know, the justification that the military-backed government uses is kind of their, the royal Thai government but we don't have any sense that there's democratic legitimacy for this government. And we don't have the same feelings towards this guy that we did towards his father. And so I, I do think that there's long odds for these protesters in the immediate term, that, that there's likely to be you know, a pretty brutal response from Thai security forces. But I think it's an indication that this is not gonna go away in, in Thailand, that unless there's some uh, you know, process to try to return towards democracy, that this is going to become a pressure cooker. And there's enough experience in Thai history of democracy that people aren't going to want to put up with that. And the Hong Kong piece is really interesting because one of the things I learned that you also hear about Missing America is that across Southeast Asia, democracy activists are teaching Hong Kong tactics. And so we may see mass mobilizations in other parts of Southeast Asia as well. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. They respond within 72 hours after an emergency strikes, staying as long as needed. Refugee and displaced families are amazingly resilient, but in places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Lebanon, displaced families are experiencing adverse winter weather on top of war, hunger, and displacement. 
Many refugee and displacement camps are unable to withstand extreme weather conditions, especially as climate conflict and economic turmoil have driven up food prices, destroyed infrastructure, and driven millions of people from their homes. Donations help the IRC provide families with the resources they need to recover and rebuild, including winter items, emergency food, shelter, fuel, medicine, blankets, and cash assistance. Uh, I have to say, the IRC is an amazing organization. They do heroic work all over the globe. And unfortunately, it has never been more important and needed. Uh, If you are thinking about giving, please consider giving to the IRC. And if you're going to give at the end of the year, uh, maybe move that up because they could use your help now. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. Okay, Ben, this is a first iteration of a new segment that I was hoping to call uh, This Could Be Us But You Trumpin'. We can workshop that a little bit. It's about leaders around the world doing cool shit that makes me super jealous of them. Today's example is the president of Portugal, uh, Marcelo Rebelo de Souza. So he has been traveling around Portugal to promote tourism. On Saturday, he took the job so seriously that he swam out into the ocean to help rescue two kayakers who had capsized, got caught in a current, and were struggling to flip the kayak back over and get to shore. He's a hero, Ben. This could be us. But we got Trump who uh, I don't I bet he can't swim. I, I don't see him as a big swimmer. Do you, does anybody think that Trump would, would run in the ocean to save anybody? I mean, I'm actually surprised, Tommy, that Jacinda Ardern hasn't already done this. Me too. You know, you would, you know I, I expected, you know, I expected the segment would be that she single handedly ran into a burning building and, and saved everybody in the building, given how she's handled things. But, uh, you know, props to this guy. I mean. That's the kind of leadership uh, that, that is sorely lacking here in the United States. Some good do-it-yourself leadership. Uh, Jacinda Ardern, uh, they just had to push their election a month, I think, because they had a bit of a flare-up of the coronavirus. Yeah. So they're, a third of the country is now in lockdown. Trump tried to suggest that that shows that all the praise that she and others were getting was undue, but it was like nine cases a day. Nine cases. Opposed to like yeah, 60,000. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. idiot. Um, okay, let's talk about the UN for a minute. We'll, we'll see if that, uh, that last segment sticks around. So there was some news out of the UN on Friday that was embarrassing for the Trump administration, frankly. So the US tried to pass a resolution at the UN Security Council that would have extended a global ban on selling conventional arms to Iran. This was part of the original Iran nuclear deal or the JCPOA. The details of this thing matter a lot less than the fact that it failed miserably. The U.S. got one vote uh, from the Dominican Republic. Russia and China voted against it. 11 countries out of the other 15 abstained, including the U.K., France, and Germany. Uh, It just shows that we're bad at diplomacy, and it it shows that apparently the State Department, the, the U.N., they're okay with looking totally isolated in the world when it comes to Iran policy, basically. But Ben, the big question is what happens next, right? We've talked about this on the show. Pompeo has threatened to use something called snapback provisions that would return all UN sanctions on Iran that existed before the Iran deal. Iran and everybody else argue that, hey, you guys withdrew from the JCPOA. Like you're not part of the deal. You can't do this to us. So, um, you know, that seems like a, a spirited debate. Our allies also worry that if we proceed with this, you could have half the world like recognizing the deal, half the world not, some of them sanctioning Iran, some not. Iran could uh, fully abandon their limits uh, on their nuclear activities. Ben, can you remind us what these snapback provisions are and and why people are so worried about this potential move? I mean, even John Bolton thinks this is a bad idea. Yeah, so it is complicated, but the the, the short answer essentially is that we negotiated, uh, is one of the reasons why it was a pretty good deal, that 
essentially, and, and I, I won't go through like the, the intricacies of how this happened, but any one of the permanent members of the UN Security Council could pursue a snapback of multilateral sanctions if Iran violated the terms of the JCPOA. That, however, is essentially something that was supposed to be available to countries in the nuclear agreement. So the bottom line to this whole thing is the Trump administration left the JCPOA. They, they, they abandoned it. They tore it up. They walked out on it. And they are now, years after they did that, seeking to use something embedded in the JCPOA to reimpose a set of sanctions on Iran. And the rest of the world is saying, well, wait a second, you can't leave the JCPOA and be the ones who burned it down uh, and then say that you get to make use of some of the provisions in it, which is a pretty logical position. Yeah. Pompeo actually arguing, I mean, it's insane. And even John Bolton acknowledges this. He's actually essentially arguing that the U.S. is still a party to the JCPOA, so it can do this. The, the headline of the press release that they put out when they pulled out of the JCPOA is the United States withdraws from the JCPOA. So this is complete, the same dishonesty, the same maddening kind of hypocrisy they apply to everything. It's also not a binding contract. It's a political agreement. Well, well yeah, yeah. And, and the rest <laughs> of the world is, is not with this program. And so it's chaos. And basically either Trump will get reelected and there'll be more complete chaos around Iran policy, more, you know, we're going to walk up to the brink of war and the Iranians are, are moving forward their nuclear program, or they, they'll lose the election and there'll be some return to, to sanity here. I mean, that's, that's about my, I will say, Tommy, there's one other subplot here, which is that the, I saw, I noticed the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., who I'd never, you know, uh, has anybody ever thought of this person? I, I'd actually forgotten that, that she was there. And, and this is someone who stands on the shoulders of, you know, Susan Rice and Samantha Power and, you know, Adelaide Stevenson, you know, I mean, uh, it, it just shows you how far we've fallen that these Trump flunkies are in all these jobs doing this crazy stuff. Yeah, I know. You, you know, also, you know, I, I mentioned this before on the show. I've been reading uh, this great new book by Robert Draper about how the Iraq war came to be, was sold, the intelligence case, the arguments that were made. And it's taking me back to that period of time in 2002 when, you know, it felt like a fate accompli in the U.S., but we were actually so unbelievably isolated from almost everybody else when it came to this decision. It was like the U.S. and the U.K. were, were walking this plank together. The French were hard against. The Germans were against. Like, it feels like this is happening again when it comes to Iran policy. And that wasn't the case like four years ago. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, again, it, it shows that like you either take diplomacy seriously and, and you know, the world responds to your leadership or the world just checks you out, which is what's happened now. Yeah. Uh, let's check back in real quick on Lebanon uh, because things are, are getting worse, sadly. So we talked about this massive explosion that rocked Beirut earlier this month. Uh, I saw some subsequent reporting, Ben, from Reuters, where they talked to experts who estimated that the explosion was the equivalent uh, of two to 300 tons of TNT. So that's how big this thing was. Killed hundreds, wounded thousands more, left hundreds of thousands homeless. Um, now, according to the Associated Press, uh, coronavirus cases are, are spiking to record highs. This comes after uh, you know the explosion made three hospitals in Beirut unusable. So it's just an unbelievably awful situation for the people there. They're struggling to feed their families. There's massive political instability. Um, so I just wanted to, to mention this so people were aware and, and say, again, like, if you want to help out, check in uh, with the Lebanese Red Cross. They're doing heroic work. That was who Liz Sly, the Washington Post Beirut Bureau chief, uh, recommended supporting. 
Yeah, and the only thing I'd add to this summary is like part of what's happened is is tens and tens of thousands of people uh, have become homeless, and a lot of residences, apartments, yeah. houses have been destroyed. That's terrible news. The the s- slight sliver of hope there is that if there is international assistance, it can be put into reconstruction of of homes and apartments. That might simultaneously create some jobs, create some work, while putting people back in their homes. So so hopefully there can be a, a well-funded, internationally supported, relatively straightforward rebuilding effort that both gets some people to work and gets some people back in their homes. Yeah, uh, agreed. Well put. So th- this report caught my eye. On Monday, CNN reported that U.S. intelligence believes that Iran has also been offering bounties to Taliban fighters if they target American or, or coalition troops in Afghanistan. The report said uh, they found payments linked, the U.S. intelligence community found payments linked to six attacks in the last year alone. This is, again, separate from the bounties reportedly paid by Russia. Uh, In January, we all remember Trump ordered a a drone strike on Qasem Soleimani, the the top Iranian general, because the administration claimed at the time he was planning imminent attacks on U.S. service members. The evidence for this imminent threat was thin and vague, and they basically walked it back uh, when they had to report up to Congress. But even that conversation was focused on threats to U.S. personnel in, in Iraq, not in Afghanistan. So this report kind of caught me off guard. Um, the CNN report makes it sound like no specific action was taken uh, by the White House in response to these Iranian bounties because they were worried about screwing up the ongoing peace talks with the Taliban. Uh, ben, the article specifically points to a major attack last December on Bagram Air Base by members of the Haqqani Network as being one that was funded by Iran. I wondered if you could just like tell people who the Haqqani network is real quick. And like, does this report surprise you? I mean, I feel like we've long heard about uh, Iran providing certain types of weapons uh, in Iraq or other places. I don't recall such specific reporting about Iran in Afghanistan. The bounty program seems pretty aggressive, but I mean, maybe this is just fairly standard for like these IRGC creeps. Yeah. So first of all, the Haqqani network, you know, they're part of the kind of the Taliban front. Uh, They're, you know, they come from a tribal area on the border of Afghanistan and into Pakistan. Um, And Haqqani is actually part of the the tribal name there. Um, And, you know, have been designated as a terrorist organization by the U.S. Back when we were in an office, among all of the different, uh, you know, groups that kind of fought with the Taliban, the Haqqani network was particularly noted for engaging in these kind of attacks against U.S. forces into Kabul in particular. Um, and, and, you know, essentially, really, the U.S. military saw them as one of the leading force protection threats in the country, um, in part because they had the safe haven in, in Pakistan as well. Now, in, so it's not a surprise that the Khani network would launch a complex attack against U.S. forces. Yeah. In terms of Iran, it's not particularly surprising They've kind of played lots of different sides uh, in, in Afghanistan. What they really want more than anything is to retain, you know, this is on their border. They retain some leverage in Afghanistan, be able to work through proxies. Obviously, they want the U.S. out as well. Um, so this is of a piece with the type of stuff Iran does, although more aggressive than anything that I remember. With us, it was more like they, they want to kind of maintain these ties, like the idea of just kind of direct bounties. I don't remember anything like that. So this would be an escalation from Iran. And by all accounts, Donald Trump did absolutely nothing, you know, just like he did nothing with the, the, the Russian bounties. And part of what's so astonishing to me is just how much 
they they were invested in this peace deal that they would look the way the other way. I mean, imagine being a U.S. We've got a bunch of troops in Afghanistan. How do they feel? Totally abandoned. Their commander in chief doing nothing, even though he's got reports sitting on his desk of Iranian and Russian bounties on their heads that we also have reports were acted on. And this guy's doing nothing because of his precious peace deal with the Taliban. And, and never mind, why are we even still in a peace deal with the Taliban if they're taking money from the Russians and the Iranians to kill American soldiers? Yeah, I, I was trying to read between the lines on this one. I was like, is this an administration leak because they want to show yet another way that Iran is bad to justify future attacks on them? Maybe, but it also makes them look completely feckless and pathetic. Like, like you, look, we all want peace in Afghanistan, but like Donald Trump just wants to get out of there. He doesn't really care if they cut a deal. The idea that they wouldn't respond in some way to protect these U.S. troops, if like there were six or seven or, or maybe more attacks on, on U.S. personnel that were reimbursed by the Iranian regime is wild to me, especially just given the makeup of these like right wing hawks when it comes to Iran. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very, very strange story. Uh, ben, one quick follow up I just want to do. So a couple of weeks back, we talked about how the former king of Spain, uh, King Juan Carlos, had announced he was leaving the country in the middle of this major corruption investigation into his activities. Spanish authorities are reportedly investigating whether a $100 million payment to Juan Carlos from Saudi Arabia was a kickback associated with the construction of a high-speed railway project by some Spanish firm in Saudi. So Juan Carlos abdicated the throne in 2014 uh, after a separate corruption investigation. It means he's no longer immune to prosecution, hence getting the fuck out of there. Ben, guess where he is now living? Oh, uh, where is a corrupt king welcomed? I mean, you know, there's like the Seychelles, there's like Monaco, like uh, closer to home for this episode. The United Arab Emirates, the corrupt ex-king ah, is reportedly oh, close to yes, the Abu Dhabi yes, crown prince sorry. Mohammed Bin Zayed, who you will hear all uh, about in our conversation with yes. Rula Jabril. Are you surprised? No, I'm not. And let, let, the Seychelles are, you know, uh, usually actually where the Emiratis like to vacation, right? So it's kind of, an, it's, a, it's a close. But uh, yeah, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, that, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Uh, two more things. So um, this caught my eye because of the unbelievable pettiness that I think tells you a lot about the people who work in the White House. So according to a report in the Daily Beast, uh, a bunch of White House senior staffers have grown increasingly frustrated with a guy named Matthew Pottinger. So he's the Trump uh, deputy national security advisor. Ben, uh, are they mad about, you know, the pandemic response being disaster? Are they mad about fraying relations with key allies? The fact that the world is laughing at us? No. They're mad at Pottinger because he decided to wear a mask early on in the pandemic, and they interpreted that as somehow an affront or a challenge to Trump, who was at the time shitting on masks, I guess. Uh, just, you know, quick reminder to all the idiots uh, who are quoted in the story, masks protect the people around you, not the one wearing the mask. And Pottinger's boss, Robert O'Brien got the coronavirus. Uh, but look, before you decide any of these people are, are good guys, know that Pottinger is also credited with lobbying to call COVID the China virus and is some, you know, crazy extreme China hawk. So great people. Well, but yeah, Pottinger's this guy who, who used to hear was like a normal, you know, conventional kind of Republican guy yeah. who's become completely, I think, radicalized with anti-China fervor. But it, Tommy, it's like these guys are like the the, the kids in high school who like took pride at failing the tests and like beat up the kid who did his homework or something, you know, like how petty and, and these are the people sitting at the heart of the pandemic response and they're hazing the guy for wearing a mask. 
I mean, like for being right. What the hell? You know, like this is where we're at. Criticizing the guy talking smack about him to the press yeah. uh, for correctly noting that the pandemic was going to be a big deal. Taking steps to protect his colleagues. Yeah. That gets you. Such a uh, loser right wearing a mask. Oh, my gosh. You know? Yeah. Total loser. OK, we're going to take a break in a second and we're going to talk to Rula Jabril about this peace deal, in quotes, between Israel and the UAE uh, that was mediated, negotiated something by the United States. But before we get to the conversation with Rula, Ben, I just want to see if you had any thoughts before we really interview her on our thoughts, because we thought it was particularly important to talk to Rula today because there are no Palestinian voices being interviewed, quoted, acknowledged in these stories. And she is a Palestinian. Yeah. I mean, here's the, the baseline of what, how I look at this deal, right? And I want to be clear, like normalization, Arab recognition of Israel is a good thing that people have wanted to see for a long time, that the idea that there are a bunch of Arab governments that reject Israel's right to exist, you know, don't recognize Israel, it, that, that changing has been an objective that I think we can all share. Rula, I think, makes the point quite passionately that true normalization it has to include people, not just governments. Um, but beyond that, I think there's a couple of things I just wanted to say to unpack this deal. First of all, the UAE and Israel have been getting closer and closer and closer for a long time now. Uh, they basically coordinate in Washington. They talk to each other. They're all kinds of back channels, frankly, front channels, like people hanging out at Cafe Mano, uh, the, the, the kind of heart of the DC establishment where this was negotiated. But I, I saw this, Tommy, as someone who lived through a lot of diplomacy with and around these countries. And, and I thought, okay, what are the motivations of these leaders? Because really nothing that much changes we'll see there's a roadmap to, to open up embassies and that kind of stuff. That would be good. There's a discussion of direct flights. That would be good. But essentially, the UAE and Israel have already basically been aligned on a lot of stuff in the region, including kind of an anti-Iran front. So what is really happening here? Well, Bibi has got himself on a limb with annexation. He knows he can't do annexation right now. We're in the middle of a pandemic. People in Israel aren't even focused on it. So he, he doesn't want to move forward. And so he climbs down from what he said he was going to do and get something in return. And, and that's basically it, you know, for, for Bibi. This is a, a, a win. What is MBZ up to then, the, the Mohammed bin Zayed? And you'll hear Rula calling Mohammed uh, MBZ, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, the ruler of, of the UAE. Well, he knows that he's in a pickle if Joe Biden is elected president because he's basically been front and center in promoting Mohammed bin Salman, you know, who's chopped up a journalist. He's been front and center in the war in Yemen. The UAE has been a full partner with the Saudis on that until recently. He basically has been trashing Democrats, including, you know, our former boss, Barack Obama, very openly. So he needs to do something to, to buy some goodwill in Washington to inoculate himself against and hedge against a, a Biden victory, or maybe to help Trump, his best buddy, get reelected. So that's what's in it for him, in addition to the reports coming out now that all this advanced weaponry can be sold to him now, you know, that the U.S. has not transferred certain advanced weapons to any Arab country uh, because Israel has to have a certain military advantage in, in the region. We're waiving that now for them. So he gets arms, he gets a hedge if Biden wins, and he gets uh, to, to do a favor for Trump in case Trump wins, obviously. And, and what doesn't happen here? The thing that graded me most about the kind of fawning coverage of this thing is even if you say, okay, this is incrementally a step forward, another, albeit small Arab country, recognizes Israel, 
it was described as a quote historic peace agreement. Like the UAE and, and Israel weren't in conflict, and the people that need to be a part of a peace agreement are the Palestinians. That's what Donald Trump said himself he was going to assign Jared Christian to do at the beginning of this administration. And the extent to which they've been totally wiped out and forgotten in this whole picture, I think just tells you this isn't about peace. This is about three leaders, Trump, Bibi, and Netanyahu, dealing with short-term political problems that they have by dressing this up as some massive historical Camp David-style thing when it's just not that. And, and, and you know, really you'll hear, I think, a, a very visceral uh, frustration with it. But I mean, that that's basically how I look at this thing. Yeah, I share your frustration. There's a very um, Singapore summit vibe to a lot of the coverage where there is a lot of credulous repetition of something being historic without a real effort to unpack the substance because the substance isn't even finalized yet, nor is there really an effort to look under the hood at the broader sort of significance for the Palestinian people, what it might mean for the people of Yemen if Saudi Arabia and the UAE are sold advanced drones, right? Like, how is that going to stop the civil war that's been raging for years? It could lead to an end run around Congress for some of these arms sales. So if people like this deal, they think it makes Israel more secure. I'm totally here for those arguments. Thrilled to like talk more in detail about it. We did want to talk to Rula today because there's just been zero Palestinian voices and it's so important. Why on earth would you believe promises made by Donald Trump and Bibi Netanyahu right before an election. Like those are the last people you should just like take on faith. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. no, I'm glad you said it this way too, because I I wouldn't be very clear, right? Like, it's not like this is the worst thing to ever happen or anything. This could be a positive thing, right? You you could- Happy to be wrong. You, you, no, but, and you could believe that this is an incrementally positive step. One more country recognizes Israel. But this is not what it's, it's been presented as this like massive thing. I mean, it's just, this isn't like Egypt negotiating peace with Egypt after fighting its neighbor, after fighting all these wars in the largest country in the Arab world, or, or Jordan, again, a neighbor that it had been fighting wars with. This is like people that they're kind of in business with behind the curtain, and they're just kind of opening the curtain and saying, yeah, you know, the thing that everybody knows who's been working in, in diplomacy in the Middle East for the last decade plus, everybody knows that the Israelis and Emiratis coordinated on all manner of stuff. So they're basically coming public with that before an American election. Okay, but like it's just to, 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 to give this kind of clean shot of it, this is somehow an historic peace agreement. I think, again, even if you think it's a positive step, and I think there are reasons you heard from Rula about why it might not be positive, right? And particularly what it does to the Palestinians. But to, to, to hype it like this is just kind of bizarre. And it, it was weird to see the, the American news media um, just kind of give Jared Kushner like a clean shot to do a victory lap. Yeah. If you're comparing this to Egypt and Israel signing, you know, their regional peace deal in 79 or the (laughs) Jordan peace treaty in 1994, you need to just read a book, dig a little deeper because this is not that. I think the press sometimes like on paper, the events seem big. You want to give Trump his due because you criticize him so much. But uh, like, I just encourage everyone to listen to our interview because I think there's a lot more to this, especially for the Palestinian people. So we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have our conversation with Rula Jabril. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads, free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. 
there's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, to two, more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. Uh, That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras. <laughs> Become a member today. Go to cricket.com slash friends now to learn more. American presidents used to lead the free world. Today, it's going to be only America first. Our president's trying to dismantle it. I'm Ben Rhodes. In my new podcast, we'll look at how America's turned its back on the world, leaving nationalists, despots, and sectarian strongmen to do whatever they want. But we'll also meet a global movement of progressives who are fighting back. And we'll learn how to be the country the world needs us to be. Subscribe to Missing America from Crooked Media, wherever you get your podcasts. Rula Jabril is a foreign policy analyst, journalist, author, novelist, screenwriter, and a great follow on Twitter. Uh, Rula, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me. So last week, uh, President Trump announced what has been described as a historic peace deal, and we'll get into that description in a bit, between Israel uh, and the United Arab Emirates. The deal is basically the Israelis agree to suspend their plan uh, to annex territory in the West Bank in exchange for normalizing relations with the UAE. We will now refer to it as the Cafe Milano Accords, because apparently this diplomatic back and forth started at a dinner at an overpriced Georgetown restaurant called Cafe Milano, uh, as one does in Washington. But before we get to the, the conversation and the questions, I just want to quickly define a couple of things for listeners in case they don't know these terms. So previously, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu had announced his plan to annex parts of the West Bank. Annexation means the Israeli government declares sovereignty over that land, over parts of the West Bank where there are Jewish settlements, and then potentially uh, sovereignty over land along the West Bank's border with Jordan called the Jordan Valley. The exact amount of territory subject to annexation isn't defined, I don't think. I think it's probably like literally being drawn on maps in these meetings. But according to an analysis by the uh, Washington Institute for Near East Peace, the high-end estimate could mean Israel taking control of 29% of the West Bank, where 109,000 Palestinians currently live. Uh, Normalization means that Israel and the UAE will have public diplomatic relations uh, instead of just contacts behind the scenes, and the two sides will agree to negotiate agreements on a whole bunch of stuff from establishing embassies, tourism, direct flights, etc. So uh, this is something Israel really wanted. So, Rula, first question to you is, almost all of the coverage has been focused on what this means for Trump, Netanyahu, uh, but there has been little to no focus on what it means for the Palestinian people. So that's my first question. I mean, what do you think this agreement means for the Palestinian people and and for the hope of a future Palestinian state? Zero, nothing. Um, So three things, if I may. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu, Jared Kushner, uh, or the Trump administration and MBZ, they have uh, shared values. So MBZ, Uh, who is the ruler, unelected ruler of uh, the United Arab Emirates, always had diplomatic relationships secretly with the Israelis. They've always been a very viable uh, of-the-record relationship. Why of-the-record? Because they were concerned about the Arab public opinion and the Arab rage, because 80% or almost 90% of the people who live in the region, 400 million people, 
by the way, the Emiratis are only 1 million. 1 million in a region of 400 million people. They oppose any normalization of relationship with, with, uh, with Israel or let's say with, uh, with uh, the last occupying nation on earth because of their oppression of Palestinians. They always stated uh, the Arab world unanimously and Arab rulers decided that the only way to make peace if Israel accepts basically to withdraw from the occupied territories. That was always the position. So what the Emiratis are doing is pivoting from that position, saying we don't care what the Arab public opinion uh, wants or uh, we don't care about what the region wants. We care about what we want. And what they want basically is to reinstate authoritarianism authoritarianism all over the Middle East. For them, their natural ally is Bibi Netanyahu, who's denying millions of people any, any, any rights whatsoever in the case of the Palestinians. So they're accepting uh, the idea that Palestinians will be living perpetually under military occupation. The Emiratis are the one that in 2011, Basically, when the Arab Spring started, and in the White House, we had President Obama, the first African-American president, that absolutely sympathized with the Arab movement who called for democracy, dignity, social justice. MBZ saw that as a threat. So he waged, basically pumped billions of dollars, waging a war on the pro-democracy camp in the Middle East. Not only that, he decided to wage a war on America as well, indirectly by exporting and importing the regime change agenda that George W. Bush basically, uh, that was his idea. So what did he do? He was the first one behind the scene to back Donald Trump. He was the first one to try to arrange meeting between Russia and the Trump campaign. MBZ is the one that actually endorsed the Muslim ban. I mean, think of that. You have a ruler who is the sovereign or the despot who govern a country where the overwhelming majority of people are Muslims, and he's endorsing a Muslim ban in America. He endorsed also the concentration camp in China. For him, it's about creating an axis of autocrats that crush people, that dominate people, that basically deny people all over the board, whether in America, in Palestine, or Israel, or even in the MENA region, any rights whatsoever. You can drink alcohol, you can drive a car, you can have uh, you know, a relationship and you can have dancers in the desert, but never in the Middle East, what he doesn't want anybody to open their mouth about reforms. So this is the model that we're seeing. So Rula, you know, in the past, uh, the, the Gulf countries, particularly Saudi Arabia and the UAE, you know, had, had signed on to the Arab Peace Initiative, which as, as you kind of alluded to, suggested that there would be full normalization with Israel when there was a, a two-state solution, when there was a Palestinian state. And, and the UAE is obviously you know, broken from that and essentially uh, agreed to normalize in exchange for a promise to suspend annexation. At the same time, you know, the Palestinian leadership has you know, been besieged um, internally and externally. I get my question is for the Palestinian people. Where, where did they turn? You know, where do they look for for support now in, in, a, in a neighborhood where you know MBS and Saudi Arabia doesn't seem to, to care at all about the Palestinian cause? Um, you know, MBZ, as you say, seems more interested in perpetuating autocratic power than certainly doing anything for for Palestinian rights. You know, Iran is obviously uh, focused uh, on its own conflicts 
with some of those same actors uh, and its own in internal challenges. Um, wh wh where do Palestinians look right now for, for hope? So Palestinians are, they see themselves and their struggle as um, for their survival and continuation as a nation. I mean, we, are, we reached a level of hopelessness and despair where they are concerned about their existence and continuation as a nation. They feel that they are like the Kurds, stateless people without any support whatsoever. Uh, where, where they are looking, to be honest, Ben, for the first time I've seen exactly like these access of autocrats are trying to enable, empower, and, and help each other. They're looking at the international community who stand for equality and justice all over the world, from Black Lives Matter to uh, pro-democracy activists in Belarus, or even creating a, 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 a democratic awakening. All of so so when, when Black Lives Matter were protesting in America, Black Palestinians were protesting uh, against racism in America and racism in Israel, in Palestine and the occupied territories. When the movement for pro-democracy was happening around the Arab world in 2012 and 11, Palestinians had the same, they understood uh, the fight and they actually expressed solidarity with that movement, whether it's uh, in Cairo, in Riyadh, whether even if it's in Hong Kong. So they are looking at the international community, not institutions, not anymore rulers, but they're looking at the people. So what Mohammed bin Zayed, Jared Kushner, Donald Trump, and MBS, or even Bibi Netanyahu, they're basically bypassing uh, the popular vote and popular will, or, or let's say the public opinion. They think that they can disregard it. We've seen this model before and it failed. So we always in the United States had a direct relationship with Arab regimes, with despotic regime from Mubarak to Gaddafi to others. Where did that leave us? They left us with mass radicalization, mass unemployment, mass despair, and a region in disarray, and a region that is in conflict with itself. Donald Trump doesn't care if the world collapse or burn. He has the same mindset, like Bibi Netanyahu and like Assad, let the country burn if I stay in power. And this is a scary moment, not only for Palestinians, but it's a wake up call, I think, for Americans. Because if that autocratic rule arrived to America and, and if Donald Trump win again, what you're going to see that Mohammed bin Zayed and Mohammed bin Salman, who can chop somebody like Jamal Khashoggi in an embassy and can be defended by uh, the president and his son-in-law, the slumlord, what you're going to see actually People become, they will, I mean, we've seen protesters being brutalized in the street of Portland and elsewhere. We are going to see even a further shift on police state tactics. I mean, I, as you know, Ben, I, I predicted not only a victor of Donald Trump in 2015, I predicted that there will be an authoritarian, fascist style government in America if this guy is win a second term. What you see in the occupied territories this will become a common tactic in America, in American street, against anybody that stands in the face of Donald Trump. Starting with people like you, Ben Rhodes, because they view you as the real opposition. They can dismiss what I say. I'm a black Palestinian who happened to be a Muslim, who happened to be critical of these autocratic regimes. But you've been in these power rooms. You've been in the conversation rooms. You've seen Mohammed bin Zayed and Mohammed bin Salman. You understand how they operate you know the, the depth of their uh, depravity and what they're willing to do. But also we know that they are now 
financing people around the world. In Yemen, for example, their allies on the ground who are fighting on their behalf are Al-Qaeda. Who's going to stand up to these people? Donald Trump? I don't think so. Yeah, I, I want to dig into that because a lot of the coverage of this deal suggests that there's this major strategic realignment happening in the region, right? Like the theory goes that these Gulf countries and Arab states, they may not love Israel, but these days they, they seemingly care less about the Palestinian cause because they care more about Iran. Uh, you know, one could question uh, whether some of these leaders ever really cared about the Palestinian cause or it was just something they used to rally people, but that's, you know, sort of a different uh, question. But, you know, implicit in the coverage, right, is the suggestion that the UAE is the first in a wave of dominoes to fall. And now you'll see normalization between Israel and Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Oman, just like a wave of, of peace deals breaking across the region. And my question is, one, have you seen any evidence of this besides like Jared Kushner background statements asserting it? And then two, maybe a little counterintuitively, like knowing the destructive role that the UAE and Saudi have played in Yemen, knowing that Mohammed bin Salman has dispatched kill teams to multiple countries to silence critics, is normalization destined to be good, right? Like I'm not pretending that our, our only diplomacy is with good guys. The Iran deal, I think, is a great example of that not being the case. But we're, we're not hearing a lot about what this could mean for average people in any of these countries who maybe don't like their rulers. Yeah. So let's start with normalization, that it will have a domino effect. That's a myth. I understand that uh, the alternative reality that this administration has been promoting for day one, uh, when it comes to the Middle East, it becomes, uh, it, it's bloated, basically. So let's look at Bahrain. Bahrain is a province of Saudi Arabia. Whatever Saudi Arabia decides, Bahrain will do. Oman is a different issue, and Oman, I think, in a, in a very different position. But if you talk about Sudan, Sudan had a transitional government, uh, which has followed the, the popular uprising that's been taking place in the last six, seven months. These transitional figures are bankrolled and linked to Saudi Arabia and basically MBZ and MBS, uh, the AUE and, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, so MBZ has been bankrolling these figures in Sudan, in Yemen, uh, has been bankrolling the tyrant in Egypt that Donald Trump called my favorite dictator, uh, has been bankrolling Haftar in Libya, who's this military strongman that's been uh, basically committing all kinds of atrocity and war, war crimes. So normalization with Arab rulers or dictators doesn't mean normalization in uh, between Israel and or, or the rest of the region. Uh, look at that. You have two kind of normalization historically that happened with Egypt and Jordan. Does any really Israeli can go to Egypt and feel really safe there? Or the, they have embassies. It's like a bunker. They, they are hiding inside these bunkers because they understand instinctively that unless they have a deal with the Palestinian who are the direct the people on the ground that are subjected to Israeli ruthless military uh, dictatorship, Unless they have some kind of deal with the Palestinians, there's no kind of renormalization. Any Israeli that will put his foot anywhere in the region is threatened, basically, because what they see, they see them as a symbol of uh, the military occupation and the oppression against the Palestinians. So one thing is to have Mohammed bin Zayed take his private jet going to Israel or some, uh, I don't know, as Jared Kushner, somebody that a Twitter celebrity that can go to the mosque and pray and post pictures. Something else is actually to go to Morocco, Mauritania, uh, Jordan, even Egypt that has diplomatic ties with Israel for any Israeli and feel safe 
and feel that he can walk around without being attacked. What we are seeing is a return to the past when we thought that Sadat, who did peace with Egypt, will open the door for really a different uh, relationship with the Israelis, a different narrative. It didn't happen with Egypt, which is the biggest country in the region, one of the biggest, 80 million people, now 100 million people. It will not happen with a Gulf tyrant who is ruling the lives of 1 million people in a region of 400 million. It's, it's preposterous. And Bibi Netanyahu is exploiting this for very cynical reasons. He's a corrupt wannabe dictator. He wants, he's attacking the judiciary like Donald Trump. He's attacking the media like Donald Trump. He's attacking, remember, he's the man that lobbied against the Iran deal in America. He came by passing the president, President Obama. He was so racist against President Obama. You know why? Because he's seen President Obama what he never wants to see in his country. A man, and basically a, a normal citizen from different background. His father was Muslim. He is a black man, rise from the bottom to the top. That's a kind of revolution they're trying to crush. The idea that citizen can rise up from any background and basically become the prime minister or the president of their country. They want to crush any democratic aspiration of the people. That's what they are about. This is what they this deal is basically a smoke screen. Uh, they're selling weapons between Saudi Arabia to the Saudis to the Emiratis. Now Israel can sell weapons directly. It's an armed deal disguised as a peace deal. Uh, this is what it is about. So Rula, if you, um, as you said, the, the future of Donald Trump is reelected is quite dark here in, in, in the Middle East. Um, if there is a change administration, if there is a, a Joe Biden presidency, how would you want to see the United States approach these countries differently? What, what I, I mean, obviously you can't untangle yourself from all the weight of history and all the hypocrisies of American policy. But, but, but as a starting point, what, what would you like to see a democratic administration do differently? Well, first, don't have, I mean, there, one thing is to, to look at the reality for what it is or what we want it to be. So if, if the people around uh, Biden-Harris administration are people with all due respect to Wendy Sherman, with all due respect to uh, ben Shapiro are still tied to the idea that there's one, there's a two-state reality when on the grounds of fact are speaking, speak volume, then we have a serious problem. You're, you're projecting your, your ideals and ideas on a reality that does not exist on the grounds. When Palestinians signed the peace deal in 1993, together with Israel, there were only 60 settlements in the West Bank. 26 years on, we have 200 settlements and almost 600,000 settlers. In the last 26 years, people in America and across the world, and especially in Israel, they've been pumping billions of dollars in a colonial infrastructure in the occupied territories. It's annexed, it's de facto annexed. We are in a one-state reality, and it needs to be acknowledged. I am like President Rivlin, President of Israel. I'm a one-stater. We need to shift and, and pivot and somehow tie Israeli aid the billions of dollars that Israel received on a regular basis to some democratic reforms inside the occupied territories. And I'm not talking about only um, announcement like Jared Kushner. I'm talking about real uh, reforms. You have ministers 
who are sitting in the cabinet of Israel who lives in the occupied territories. You have two Supreme Court justices. It's a de facto one-state reality. I agree with President Rivlin of Israel. We're already in a one-state reality. Let's give equal rights to Palestinians and voting rights, because if you deny them the basic right to vote and select their legitimate representation, that has a name, and the name is apartheid. So either you acknowledge that there's de facto apartheid and distance yourself from this, or don't put the Hippocratic you know, charade process of a two-state when on the ground it does not exist. I hope in the next administration to see people like you, Ben, and others who can challenge the administration on uh, their stance. I mean, we can't live in a hypocritical world anymore. The world is watching. We live in an aquarium where everything is visible. So if we keep uh, looking at what, what some of Democrats are deluding themselves with, then it's like the myth of climate change. It's coming. It's not here. No, it is here, and it's endangering our existence, and we need to deal with it. Two quick things just before my, my final question. One, I just want to clarify that uh, it's Dan Shapiro, not Ben Shapiro, working for Biden. That's the, mean, yeah, the meanest thing I've ever said right. about Dan You're Shapiro. Right. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> We're not big uh, Ben Shapiro fans here, too. What you said about arms sales is super interesting. There's all these reports now that this – uh, this deal might allow the U.S. to sell the UAE uh, the F-35, the most advanced jet, some advanced drone technology. So it does seem like a way to skirt Congress. It, it seems like a way to get around what uh, D.C. nerds called uh, call Israel's qualitative military edge or QME, which basically requires that the U.S. Uh, sell them arms and, and preserve their primacy militarily in the region. But my, my last question for you is like, all the coverage of this deal is getting folded into this sort of Middle East peace framework, which, again, stepping back, is weird because the Palestinians are not part of the negotiations. So it seems like that's absurd on its face. Um, the Financial Times had an interesting editorial where they point out that normalization was the main, if not the only point of leverage for the Palestinians in these negotiations. And now it is partially gone, if not on the road to fully gone. And the FT wrote... Yeah, I mean, they, they wrote, rather than delivering peace, this deal is likely to exacerbate Palestinian sense of hopelessness that will only store up greater problems for the future. Do you agree with that argument? And do you think there, there's a way to counteract it? You know, uh, you mentioned the one state solution, but, uh, you know, through these negotiations, maybe. Look, I think the push should be, uh, I really don't think the Palestinians can achieve anything at this point without an international consensus about do we accept in the 21st century that people are captives, are slaves in their land? I think if, if, if the, your answer is no, then you have to challenge this administration and the other and to challenge Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, it's been easier to challenge Trump in this country than to challenge Bibi Netanyahu. Let's be clear. You can challenge any Republican uh, or Democrat in this country and go after them on all kinds of issues. But when it comes to Israel, you know, you have uh, this camp that's tried to um, somehow protect, overprotect Israel, which undermine Israel democracy. In the name of protecting or further protecting Israel, even Democrats, they basically, uh, now we're watching reality where an Israel prime minister can come to America, lobby against a sitting president, and, and, and wage, wag his finger in his face in the White House and disrespect him and have ministers, cabinet ministers, uh, basically saying racist things against the first African-American president. I mean, I remember the wife of um, 
the Minister of Defense uh, under Bibi Netanyahu, where she said, I like my coffee. It's black and weak, like, like, like President Obama. I mean, the kind of racist, disgusting discourse. So Trump is unpopular everywhere except in Israel. Why do you think? I mean, when you, when you overlook racism against Palestinians, you are basically normalizing racism against everybody else, every minority group. And that's why it's important to talk. Regarding the arm deal, and I think this is so important, there's an arm, after Jamal Khashoggi was butchered, after the Ritz-Carlton um, coup somehow, where MBZ decided he needed some cash, and he used his relative like an ATM card where he tortured them until they hand him over the money. And he keeps doing it, by the way, including one American citizen that was tortured in the Ritz-Carlton. And this administration decided that yeah, we're fine with it. We're fine with concentration camp with, with China. We're fine with MBZ and MBS doing all kind of atrocity around the region because we don't care about human rights. We don't care about uh, anything. We care about the money. So I think when, when the next administration would come in place, and I hope when we win, I hope there would be a serious investigation about the biggest scandal of this administration. And it's not Russia. It's how much financial ties Donald Trump and, and Jared Kushner have with the Saudis and the Emiratis, because this is the real story. When you have a sitting president who bypassed Congress multiple times after they beat us selling weapons to the Saudi butcher, because he thinks that selling weapons to this guy is a good thing, I think it's not because he thinks it's a good thing, because there's something more sinister. Why did Donald Trump, who campaigned against the Saudis in 2015, decide that his first state visit is to Saudi Arabia. I wonder how much that visit cost all of us in terms of, you know, democratic, uh, shattering democratic norms. But I wonder how much did he pocket from that visit? And I think we need a serious investigation. And one of the things that happened, the lack of accountability after the Iraq war emboldened further the racist, the xenophobe, and war criminals. And I believe that somebody like Donald Trump who endorsed oligarchy and corruption and endorsed war crimes, I think once we investigate him and if we hold him to account, it will become a preventative measure for the future so that anybody would come to office, he would think twice before repeating these kind of crimes. Absolutely. Let's hope. Well, listen, Roy, thank you so much for, for joining the show. Uh, it was great to have you. It was great to unpack the uh, incredibly annoying conventional wisdom about this deal. And uh, we appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot, Rula. Thank you, guys. Thanks again to Rula for joining the show. Uh, ben, thanks again to you for doing this pod with no air conditioning, all your windows closed on a sweltering hot Los Angeles day. Yeah, I'm officially hot over here. I, like there's a sweat situation that is is well suited to podcasting, Tommy, um, and not, yes, and not yeah. other forms. But it's really hot here in Los Angeles and yeah, in our climate-friendly house here, we have no air conditioning, so uh, we're, we're paying the price for that. But yeah, I, I, I can't whine. Having you and I both lived in D.C., where if you walk outside in the summer, you're drenched in sweat in about thirty seconds. Like one week where it cracks ninety degrees, and, and we've gone so soft that you know we, we freak out. Totally soft. Although the difference is in D.C., uh, you are usually running to the metro in a in a Joseph A. Banks suit that yeah, uh, that's fair. That's traps fair. heat like one of those you know, silver blankets after you run a marathon. You just want to like shoot yourself on the train. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right, man. Uh, thanks everybody listening. Talk to you all next week. Posse of the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. 
Pod Save the World is mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our amazing digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes, videos every week. <laughs>